Welcome to Rapham Focus, a podcast devoted to exploring the provocative and impactful aspects of the research published in Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. Here, we'll make sure to discuss and debate the findings that matter most for clinicians, patients, and policymakers. I'm Brian Seitz, Editor-in-Chief. I am an anesthesiologist and professor at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. At Rapham, we believe well-done pain medicine improves health and well-being. I'll work to keep the discussion relevant and factual. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. So let's start with the working definition of pain. Although there are a bunch of them, I like the one from IASP. Quote, an unpleasant sensory or emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Pain is both a disease and a symptom. With respect to the symptom, the inclusion of the word emotional in the definition alludes to the fact that consciousness is part of the pain pathway. One cannot have pain if one has an isoelectric EKG, like brain death. Everyone who works in pain medicine, whether acute or chronic, knows very well that the same tissue injury in two different patients can result in drastically different experiences and characterization of that pain. Despite the knowledge that neurocognitive aspects of human psychology are intimately related to pain, with the potential to mitigate pain, per the definition, I am constantly amazed at how little research exists examining behavioral interventions. This is why we are so excited to support Dr. Markowitz and her colleagues at the Stanford School of Medicine. Dr. Markowitz completed medical school at Tulane School of Medicine in New Orleans, followed by internal medicine residency at Stanford. Her current appointment is Associate Professor of Medicine with a courtesy appointment to Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. She is board certified in internal medicine and has developed a perioperative specialization over the past six years in her clinical role as surgical co-management hospitalist, primarily for orthopedic surgery. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me, Brian. Dr. Markovitz was the lead author in a provocative study evaluating the analgesic efficacy of hypnosis delivered to patients prior to total knee arthroplasty. In this study, 64 patients during a hospital medicine pre-op visit got either a scripted 10-minute hypnosis session or an enhanced control, which was education but not the hypnosis. The primary outcome in the study was total opioid use in milligram morphine equivalents per 24 hours of admission. Secondary outcome metrics included pain scores as well as complications. So to start things off, uh, Jesse, can you tell us a little bit about the background idea to use hypnosis as a mechanism for analgesia? Also, if you don't mind letting our readers know and our listeners know a little bit about what hypnosis is, different techniques and styles, et cetera. Absolutely. So I wish I could take credit for the idea to use hypnosis for analgesia, but it's actually been used um, throughout time. So if you look back to the 1840s and earlier, it was commonly used as an anesthetic in places like Europe and India uh, before ether was introduced. But hypnosis itself as a natural state of mind is entered into volitionally by a person or guided by a trained professional. And it's essentially a relaxed waking state Um, During this state, a person's attention is focused inward, they're dissociated from external stimuli, and they're more responsive to suggestion. So you can think of hypnosis as being absorbed in a movie where you kind of lose track of time and space and you enter that realm of suspended disbelief um, where anything is possible. It is a form of psychotherapy, so it is accomplished by language. 
the basic ingredients start with some rapport or some willingness on behalf of the patient to relax, trust, and enter that focused state, um, really focusing on the words they are hearing. And then most hypnosis will start with an induction, which means um, to focus and relax further and uh, induce that state of concentration. This is followed by suggestions to improve a particular symptom or stress in the use of hypnosis for pain management, for example. Um, and then most will include a post-hypnotic suggestion. This would be maybe to continue to improve even after the session is over. Um, it includes some self-hypnosis teaching as well to return to this beneficial practice on their own whenever it's needed. And then finally, there's always a re-alerting step to kind of alert the patient to their usual aware baseline state. Um, as far as different uh, varieties of hypnosis, there are some camps like Ericksonian hypnosis, for example, developed by Milton Erickson. He was the founder of the uh, American Society for Clinical Hypnosis. Um, and he focuses a lot on using metaphor, for example. But still, the component parts that I described are, are usually included in most hypnosis. That's a wonderful overview, I think, for our, our readers, uh, because I think most our, of our readers and our listeners have trained in the kind of traditional thinking in medicine uh, regarding anatomy, pharmacology, uh, more, I would say, traditional interventions. And so when I, when I, when I started reading your paper, when it first got submitted, uh, I, was, I was really pleased to see that a multidisciplinary team was actually considering what would be characterized as alternative therapies. How did you just personally kind of stumble into to this as an interest? Because uh, uh, if I look back at your training, you went down a traditional pathway. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I just did regular internal medicine, um, became a regular hospitalist. Um, so the way that I stumbled across this was actually searching PubMed late one night, just looking for anything to help my patients with pain. Um, this was after six months of practicing perioperative medicine, and I was spending all day every day dealing with opioid side effects, pain, suffering. And I was really feeling quite ill-equipped my first six months as an attending um, to really face this suffering and these symptoms with the tools at hand and with the standard of care. So I started looking at PubMed for hypnosis. I found so many studies in perioperative medicine looking at pain, anxiety, opioid use, and I was actually quite struck um, with how much evidence there was and the fact that I had never once heard of hypnosis in my medical training at this point, all the way up to becoming an attending. That's a remarkable point that that you never had that experience, and I, I didn't either. And 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 yet here we are dealing with the reality that so much of the experience of of healthcare is related to patients' emotional response. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we do an okay job with you know finding mechanisms of action of medications that might treat pain, but when it comes to facing human suffering, general medicine, you know, the sort of the routine pathways that we go down in our training don't address it very well. Um, and so this was something that I found that could potentially address both. It has a strong neurophysiologic mechanism, but it also addresses suffering. And that's something that was very attractive when I first started reading about it. Yeah, and I, and I, as, a, as an acute pain medicine physician, uh, I direct our acute pain uh, service at Dartmouth. Uh, when I round and, 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 and I almost on a daily basis, feel like I want an additional skill set that is in the realm of cognitive behavioral uh, medicine. And I uh, am really, really interested in growing that aspect of our service, which is lacking right now. We're really good at the procedural aspects and the the, the medicine aspects, and we're resourced for those, but we're, we really want to grow. So so this is just great uh, that, that you are um, 
engaging in this sort of research in, in education. So, so, so thank you. Did you want to say something before I cut you off before about uh, a hypnosis? <laughs> uh, um, well, I, w- I was going to mention a Lancet study that I found when I was uh, PubMedding that night. Um, it, was, it was from 2000 and it was authored by Alvira Lang, who was an interventional radiologist. The study was actually done at Stanford and they used hypnosis to reduce um, pain, anxiety, and opioid use by 40% actually um, for patients undergoing IR procedures. And um, David Spiegel was actually the last author on that study. And when I realized that he was at Stanford and that he had done that work at Stanford, um, that's, you know, I emailed him on a Sunday night and said, please, please, please help me do this with our patients. You've done it before. You've done it at Stanford. You're still here. I'm here. Uh, let's make this happen. And, um, and we got rolling very quickly on getting me trained in hypnosis and uh, starting to design the trial at that point. And I think that's a great example to our, our listeners, especially our younger uh, audience, about how medicine really is a lifelong educational uh, experience. And you're not going to learn everything that you need in a residency or, or medical school and, and everything evolves and you're going to find different interests and you can as, as, uh, as a, as a professional still grow. And so, uh, I love it. And, and I think a lot of us have probably self-taught something in our area of, uh, of interest, uh, in terms of, uh, pain medicine. Like for instance, we, uh, uh, a lot of us at, uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock are engaged now with addiction medicine therapies for patients that are actually on the acute pain medicine service. And that, that kind of is, is, is a self-taught skill with the support of ASRA and all the educational initiatives around that uh, topic. So, so that's, that's such a cool story. Now, when you uh, talk to others, you must have run into skeptics, and I certainly have in terms of cogn- cognitive behavioral interventions, where people might argue, look, you know, we're talking about a, a total knee replacement. Uh, the inflammatory response and pain after this massive operation is so intense that really only pharmaceuticals and regional anesthesia uh, would work. The, this idea of having people think about something in a different way, it just seems like it would be a weak effect. What would you, what would you say to them? We're going to get into your paper in just a, a second, but I mean, just kind of like kind of big picture uh, response to that. Cause I, I certainly have heard that before. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Those skeptics are abound. Yeah. And, um, and I was one too, until I started reading through the data. Um, there's a couple of, of, pieces that I think a skeptic needs to understand before they can really make a judgment on hypnosis. Um, one is that there's actually a lot of neurophysiology background to hypnosis that's known. Um, this has been done through, um, you know, brain imaging studies, functional MRIs. Um, there's been all kinds of neurophysiology research on hypnosis and what's actually happening in the brain. Um, and the long and the short of it, without getting into too much detail, is that different areas of the brain will activate in hypnosis, um, really depending on the suggestions that are given. So for example, if you tell somebody to transform a burning sensation into a cool numbness, that may activate the somatosensory cortex. And you can see this happening on functional MRI. Um, Whereas if you tell somebody that you might notice some discomfort coming from the knee, but you begin to realize that it just doesn't bother you as much, that's actually going to hit the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, which is more implicated in pain affect, how much suffering we attribute to um, to our, our daily lives and, and our pain. And so uh, when you really look at the fact that hypnosis is making your brain do something different, it's probably mediated by dopamine based on um, the studies that have been done uh, rather than the endorphin system like the placebo effect. Um, this is a neurophysiologic process that's being induced by language as, as humans 
we're social language animals. Um, so the first thing I would say to a skeptic is that th- this has a mechanism just like your gabapentin. Um, you just have to you know, dig into it a little bit to find out what that mechanism is. Fantastic. And, and, and I also use this, uh, and see what you think about uh, this argument. We, most people realize that their heart rate, blood pressure, and respiratory rate, and, and, and perspiration levels can be controlled by uh, the, the thinking, their, their mind. So if you can control vital signs, uh, it's not a stretch to think that you could impact on, uh, on, on pain. Absolutely. I mean, I do an exercise when I give lectures about this, where I have people close their eyes and imagine biting into a big juicy lemon. And I ask people what happened, you know, and, and we go through it a little bit slowly and everyone's like, oh, my, my mouth, you know, and um, it's like, okay, if I can say the word bite into a lemon and you can salivate all the way across the country, you want to tell me that you're, that my words and that your mind and imagination aren't impacting your body. I just prove it to you, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's great. I got, I got to, I'm going to definitely use that one. I love it. I love it. So I think what you're saying with, with, with um, the, the mechanism is, is that, is that hypnosis is kind of like a form of neuromodulation. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so I say that that's the first piece is that you can use hypnosis to modulate your nervous system and to experience pain either, you know, to reduce the pain itself or to reduce how much you care about that pain. Um, And so, you know, the other response I give the skeptics is, you know, this trial and, and many trials using behavioral interventions are done under standard of care. So I did not withdraw patients from their gabapentin and their celecoxib and their um, peripheral nerve block and their acetaminophen. You know, 90% of patients across the board had all of those things in my trial in both groups. Um, when you look at the standard opioid reduction of any of those uh, particular interventions, you see about a four to 16 milligram uh, decrease for each intervention for, you know, in most of the studies that have been done looking at at pain with arthroplasty. Um, so each of them work a little bit and that's why we use all of them, right? We say multimodal because one thing doesn't work. You know, if your celecoxib worked for, for knees and that's all you needed because tissue inflammation was the main, um, you know, nidus of pain, fine, you'd give the anti-inflammatory, you'd be done. Uh, but we know that the pain is arising from multiple different areas in the body. It's hitting different areas of the brain. We try to attack it with this multimodal approach and our patients are still hurting. Um, Anyone who takes care of arthroplasty patients knows how much pain they undergo, especially for knees. And so, um, you know, so that's the other thing I would say to a skeptic is, you know, show me a dose of celecoxib that can reduce suffering. I think that's a critical point. I really want to stress that. And uh, we are going to get to your results in just a second. But, but, but often people devalue new things because they say the effect size is so small but some of the standard of care things are very much like that. And so this, this the notion of ERAS and multimodal therapy is that it's the package together uh, that is really what we're studying. Now, I think we do have responsibility to find out which which one of those components actually works. But but Tylenol, you know, acetaminophen as an example, has a tiny effect size, but it's part of every ERAS uh, protocol that I know of. Uh, so I think that's a really, really critical point. And that's actually kind of a good segue into into your, uh, spe- specifically your study. So would, would you mind just maybe summarizing some of the, the key findings of your of your overall study? Absolutely. Yeah. So our study, we were looking at as a primary outcome, we were looking at oral morphine equivalents for 24 hours of admission after knee arthroplasty. Um, the hypnosis group um, in, in the total group used uh, about 70 uh, versus about 90 in the control group 
in terms of oral morphine equivalents per 24 hours of admission. Um, so there was a, a difference, a reduction of 20 uh, morphine equivalents in the hypnosis group, but unfortunately the p-value was 0.2. It was not statistically significant. The secondary outcomes that we looked at, average admission pain scores, 3.4 versus 3.6, those were not different. And we also looked at hospital length of stay. We looked at uh, the number of patients who qualitatively reported opioid use at two and six weeks after surgery and frequency of opioid-related side effects, and uh, none of those showed a difference between the two groups. There was also no difference in patient-reported outcomes. So we looked at the UCLA Activity Score, the Coos Junior, the BR12, and the Knee Society Score, uh, pre-op, two and six weeks, and 12 weeks after surgery, and there were no differences in those either. And I will note that um, although you found that moderate difference in the, uh, the morphine equivalents, uh, your variances were, were high, and that probably is what drove the fact that the p-value was, was not significant. So that would, could be considered uh, as, an, as, a, as an underpowered study. What do, you, what, do you think about, what do you think about that concept? Yeah, I think our study was underpowered, unfortunately. So I would agree with, uh, with the assessment that, yeah, we did have, um, you know, there was a high variation uh, between between uh, patients, and that really led to our decrease in opioid use not being statistically significant. So, is it you know is it chance? Is it not? You know, at this point, we're not sure. I brought this issue up uh, so I could discuss with you and kind of share with our listeners how we think about uh, power and um, and variation in in the studies gets that get submitted to to Rapam. And it, I encourage everyone to go to our homepage. And we have something called the guide for for review, reviewers, and those are kind of the principles that we use when we make a decision about accepting or rejecting a a manuscript. And when you have a study that's designed as a superiority study, uh, often if the study is underpowered, that study will not get accepted because we're kind of left not knowing really what to what to what to make of the potential signal. But we were very excited about this uh, study because it's really novel. And the, the signal that you see there uh, could be used for future research in terms of uh, forming a, a formal power analysis that is, 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 is going to be able to recruit the appropriate number of patients to actually uh, demonstrate superiority if one truly does exist. So I think that in the topic is very, very timely. It's critical. And it's, so this is kind of an exploratory uh, study, if you will. So I think uh, that's kind of why the the reviewers and the editorial board kind of supported this, where some studies uh, we would not have. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. That's um, and and I definitely thank you for um, you know, for being responsive to our um, our manuscript and and um, you know, the everyone went through it very carefully. I could tell that there was a a really um, you know, solid team that looked it over. And I know that you guys are very committed to making sure that you're reporting, you know, important data that that has implications. Um, I think um, to your point of having this this trial power, you know, inform powering other studies, um, you know, it, it was interesting after I was writing this, there was a paper that came out from Carlson and colleagues from Denmark in 2018. So our trial was halfway done at that point. And it actually was talking about how many knee trials are underpowered. Um, and uh, this is just a classic problem because of the standard deviation of opioid use, particularly in control groups. You have people that are using nothing and people that are using, you know, 15 milligrams of oxycodone every every four or six hours. Um, and it's really difficult to power studies when there's such a huge uh, standard deviation. 
And so um, the median number of patients per group when they looked at all of the knee trials, uh, all the arthroplasty trials that have been done was about 30 per group. And so everyone made the same mistake um, that we did in powering our study and um, ended up, you know, it ends up that a lot of studies are underpowered um, to show a difference in pain arthroplasty trials specifically. There's also a trend in arthroplasty trials or sorry, arthroplasty care to use less opioids. So when you're, when you're, when you're regardless of the, uh, the, the, the ERAS protocol. So the number one way to decrease opioid use in a trend uh, is to just prescribe less. And, uh, and so if you're, if you're using a primary outcome metric of, of, of morphine equivalents and you're in the middle of this national trend to decrease uh, opioid use, you're probably going to suffer from an un- underpowered study uh, because the power analysis may have been based on something that was several years older. Uh, in some places now we're using opioid free. Uh, that's going to be really hard in that environment to show that something works when you're using uh, 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 opioid equipments. But I want to, but I wanted to really salute you and your colleagues uh, for doing the hypnosis study in the context of standard of care, because it would be very tempting to kind of, try to isolate the independent effect of hypnosis in a, in a pure environment. Cause as a scientist, that's really kind of what you want, but then you lose all this external validity. So I hats off to you. Uh, and that's the other reason why we really wanted to support you uh, is because you did the right thing. Well, we appreciate that. Um, just to give a little, uh, a little plug for the future. Uh, we, we went back and looked at how many patients we would have needed to adequately power this study and it ended up being 60 per group. And so if nothing else gets through, I would say, um, you know, that's, that was the magic number that we, we could have hit. And I hope that that helps other people. It'll certainly help us in the future. But there was a really exciting finding in your study. Uh, this is something else that I think is worth exploring here briefly. Uh, you were able to identify an absolutely huge signal in a subgroup analysis of opioid experience patients. Now, there were only 17, uh, but it was still a huge signal. Uh, was, this su- was this subgroup analysis always planned during the creation of the study? Um, and just kind of curious how you stumbled upon that. Yeah. So, um, so we saw the 54% reduction in opioid use in the hypnosis group and, and a superimposed 35% reduction in pain, um, despite using 54% less opioids in that opioid tolerant subgroup uh, with hypnosis. So, um, yes, we, we did, uh, pre-plan that subgroup. And that was because of my experience and actually a wealth of literature, which I'm sure your listeners are familiar with that, Patients who are taking opioids before surgery have much worse outcomes with regard to pain, uh, pain medication use during the hospitalization, side effects, and longer-term outcomes as well. Things like reoperation, overdose, you know, long-term problems with opioids. Um, we know that opioid-tolerant patients are in trouble when they come in for surgery with re- regards to pain management. Um, most institutions, and Stanford certainly has a, a program where if you're over a certain morphine milliequivalents per day when you come in, it automatically triggers a special pain team consult that addresses opioid tolerance prior to surgery. So um, we all know that these are patients that are very vulnerable to harm when they come in for surgery with regard to pain management, and it can be really difficult to control their pain you know, due to tolerance. Uh, when they come in. And so we wanted to look at that group separately from the beginning um, to because I've, I figured it would probably create a little bit of a washout in our total group results, knowing that some subgroup of our total patients were going to be using um, a lot more opioids than the rest. Um, we were quite impressed with the reduction that we saw, um, though that surprised us a little bit, definitely exceeded our expectations. But I mean, that, that's what science is all about is getting these signals and, and then kind of forming your next, your next, your next plan. And, and, the, and the reality is, 
uh, to your point, these are high risk patients. We know that. So perhaps maybe this really is the target as a target rich environment for this intervention. Uh, and, and there's probably a high degree of, of associated mental illness in this group as well. Uh, so that would be another reason. So I think it's it's just super, super exciting. Many of our readers and listeners may think that the human resources costs and expertise needed to deliver hypnosis in a timely and effective manner would be would be prohibitive uh, to wide adoption of this uh, intervention. Uh, and th- th- this is a, a real concern because if you look at some of the cognitive behavioral therapies that are designed, let's say, to treat chronic pain, it's about building a relationship over many months with a therapist. And obviously, that is not applicable in this 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 perioperative environment of of of, of getting stuff done. Because you could imagine if you tell a, a surgeon, "Listen, we're gonna we're gonna cancel the case here because uh, we want to do three months of uh, of hypnosis with a patient <laughs> before surgery. It won't work too well." So I'm just curious to get your thoughts on like, is this something that could be widely, um, you know, I guess um, you know, deployed in our American healthcare system? Yeah, um, absolutely. It's it's a very important point. And hypnosis has struggled throughout the years with scalability and with trained providers and the availability of those providers, um, you know, more than it struggled with the evidence for efficacy, in my opinion. Um, you know, hypnosis is a very special kind of intervention. So it starts as a prescription, but it becomes over the counter, um, if you will, after the very first session. So, you know, what I mean is that once you have somebody who's trained, who knows how to deliver the intervention, um, provide that information to the patient and go through it one time. Really, the idea is that you're training somebody how to do self-hypnosis on their own. Um, and so, you know, it really can only take one exposure to the trained professional in order to start the ball rolling as far as benefit goes. Um, and so, you know, I think that's that's one factor. But then there's still the problem of, well, who is this trained person and when do you actually get this to the patient? Um, you know, technology is really going to be um, our saving grace for hypnosis, and I think it's going to finally make it scalable um, to the degree that it that it probably should be. Um, so, hypnosis apps—they um, you know, are—they are very prolific. There are many. Um, most of them are not even designed by people who were trained in hypnosis and are not medical professionals. Um, so, of course, there's a lot of kind of you know junk in the field out there, but. Um, better designed apps that are that are created by professionals um, are actually a reasonable way to deliver hypnosis interventions um, to really a large audience. And so, um, you know, there's one that we're working on right now that we're developing a trial for that's designed by, you know, world hypnosis experts and can also track use so we can tell who's using it and when, which I think is going to be very important to help figure out the dosing issue, which, um, you know, again, we're not quite sure how many sessions would be uh, optimal. And so um, in order to do that, I think that apps that are actually validated for efficacy with trials, which is what we're working on next, um, and that actually are are designed by people who are professionals in the field, uh, may solve this scalability and cost problem, because it's very cheap to tell someone to download an app and start listening to it. Um, There's already research that recordings are a reasonable way to deliver hypnosis. Um, there's, they're not necessarily inferior to an in-person session. So I think we have all the pieces now that we have technology on our side to be able to widely scale this. Well, that's a, that, those are great points. And it's almost like you need uh, a local champion in each health system or each actual clinical area to organize 
the, the, the training and who's going to be able to, um, you know, I guess, uh, deploy it to the patients. And so for, I look at acute pain medicine as an example, we have a team of two, uh, three uh, AP, uh, acute pain medicine nurses, fellows, uh, staff, and we round as a team. And s- some of us want to get that extra training in these kind of kind of cognitive behavioral areas. And we, we could then, uh, you know, share that with others and it can kind of grow almost organically or exponentially. And the next thing you know, you know, thirty depart your thirty department has those those skills, um, and I'm wondering if that's kind of the way way to make it all work. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know it, it only really takes four or five days to get the initial training for hypnosis if you're a medical professional. So there's two societies in the U.S. that provide training for uh, for people. You have to have a master's degree or above in be act in be actively licensed and seeing patients to be able to attend these conferences. But they happen multiple times a year. One's the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis, and the other is the Society for Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis. And uh, both those organizations, you attend their conference, you do a basic training in hypnosis, and it really goes through everything from, you know, the clinical applications, but also the ethics, the history. Um, it really is a is a nice overview of hypnosis and how to use it and how to not use it. And um, and those are easy to get. I mean, that's you know that was my first introduction to hypnosis training. Um, and what it teaches you is how to speak to people in a way that helps them feel better, um, which is useful at the bedside, even if you're not doing hypnosis interventions. Um, I stopped a long time ago asking patients, how bad is your pain? <laughs> that's right. That's like, that's like telling, telling uh, someone, you just need to calm down now. Like that's, yeah. that's, <laughs> right, I know. that's, that's, that's like, yeah, worked never. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. Try that one with your spouse and then duck them in the frying pan. Or your or your uh, or your teenager or your teenager or yeah, that's that's yeah, so, yeah. so true. Um, I, I mean, it's clear that more work is needed to unpack the potential of this of this intervention in the acute pain setting. So, what do you? think when you look at your results and, and everything that you've been through um, uh, are the most kind of like promising leads uh, from your findings and like kind of what's the best future direction we should take as a, as a research community? Yeah, absolutely. So, I, you know, I think, of course, findings wise, the opioid and pain reduction in the opioid tolerant patients, um, if that can be replicated, that's going to blow the top off of our standard of care for patients coming in for surgery who are on opioids, which is a lot of patients. It's, you know, probably close to 25-30% of arthroplasty patients, up to 50% of spine patients. Um, so that finding really needs to be investigated further so we can see if this is something that's, you know, that's actually going to hold water. If it does, I think um, we should waste no time at getting this intervention um, into, you know, all of our clinical centers, particularly with what's been going on with the opioid crisis now for, you know, a couple decades. Um, it's it's far beyond time that we find something that helps for this patient population. This is a, this is kind of a, uh, a shot across the bow to all the budding researchers out there. Uh, if this signal on the uh, opioid tolerant patients is, can be reproduced in Israel, it's a huge story. And, and policymakers are going to have to listen because we're going to need to f- uh, make sure we budget the resources needed to deliver this if this signal is real. So it's so exciting. Uh, and I'm just so, so happy that you chose our journal to uh, share your work in. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, um, and it's always fun to talk about it. And, um, you know, if you're, if your listeners and your readers ever want to, you know, talk more, collaborate, or figure out how they can do this in their own center, I'm always open to 
I'm talking with people across the country and across the world to get this out there. It's really um, a passion for me and I hope to inspire more clinicians to explore hypnosis, both clinical applications uh, and research. So uh, feel free to reach out and I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks for joining us and thanks to all of you who listened in. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Rapham Focus podcast. Original music and production are done by Dan Langa. More information can be found at www.danlanga.com. We hope you'll join us in the future for more discussions with authors published in the Rapham Journal, and you can visit us at www.rapham.org.